1: Hello and welcome to your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author, Carl Ernst's and M.B. Lowe's new book, I Cannot Write My Life, Islam, Arabic and Slavery in Omar Ibn Said's America, is a fascinating and riveting book that offers the most authoritative account to date of the life and Arabic writings of Omar ibn Said, a scholar from what is today Senegal who was sold to slavery in the early 19th century and brought to southern U.S. Moreover, this path-paving book offers critical correctives to dominant perceptions of Saeed's remarkable life narrative. Rather than understand Omar ibn Said as a Muslim slave who had made peace with his new life in the US or had even converted to Christianity, Ernst and Lowe demonstrate the deep imprints of Islam and Islamicate knowledge traditions in Omar ibn Said's varied writings, such as his reflections on his life and his letters. This book, written in lyrical and engaging prose, makes available for the first time comprehensive translations of Omar ibn Said's Arabic writings into English. It also makes a compelling and convincing case for taking seriously Arabic texts from Africa as part of world literature. Here now is my conversation with Professor Karl Ernst uh, hello, Carl, again on the New Books Network. Uh, we're here to discuss uh, your and M. phenomenal new book, I Cannot Write My Life, Islam, Arabic, and Slavery in Omar Ibn Said's America. M. By, unfortunately could not join us today because of some pressing uh, commitments that he had. Uh, so we will be uh, chatting with you, Carl, about it. So uh, I thought as a way to begin our conversation, perhaps you could share a bit with our listeners about how did you guys come to collaborate on this project? How did you think of doing this? I know you've been thinking about Omar Ibn Sayyid for many years now, but could you share with, uh, a little with our listeners about how you, this project came about and this collaboration with Milo?
0: Thank you very much for having me, Sher Ali. It's really a great pleasure to be here. Well, as you know, I was interested in Omar Ibn Sayyid many years ago, and in fact, 25 years ago, I went to Davidson College to have a look at the Arabic Bible that was procured for him. And I made a number of notes on it and it mystified me. It was very strange. I didn't know what he was doing. But about four years ago, Davidson College published on the library website images of all the pages in this Bible that had annotations by Omar. And I had looked at these before in my first visit years ago. But I was looking at it closely, and I suddenly felt that I understood what was happening. It was very strange, because what he was doing was, first of all, very minimal. He was writing something in the margin at the beginning of about 30 of the books of the Bible. And what it was turned out to be the English name of the book written in Arabic characters. And this appeared to me to be the most minimal engagement with the Bible that one can imagine. And I realized that what it showed was that people had asked him to memorize the titles of the books of the Bible in English. This is a task which is commonly given to 10-year-old students in Sunday school, in Protestant churches. And it suddenly hit me that his attendance at church and the stories of his conversion to Christianity were extremely exaggerated. And so I I went through all of the writings that are, were on that in that Bible and I then talked with him by because he and I had been teaching together a class which you might have taken which was the uh, graduate seminar for the Middle East and Islamic Studies concentration in Duke and UNC. And so he and I got along very well, and when I suddenly had this realization about the Omar material, I said to him, we need to teach a course on this, and we need to teach a book about it. We need to write a book. And so he agreed, and we went from there. And that class was really an extraordinary experience, and it was the basis for the book which is now available.
1: Well, uh, most uh, listeners would, of course, know about Omar Ibn Said quite well, but still, just in case... Um, uh, if you could briefly tell our listeners a bit about who this figure is, uh, briefly. Uh, and I think you've already touched on this, but if I could ha- also have you talk a bit about there is a dominant narrative about Omar ibn Sa'id that you really challenge very vigorously and very convincingly in this book. Could you talk a little about the dominant perception that we have of him and how do you go about challenging that perception?
0: Right. Well, <clears throat> Omar ibn Sa'id was born about 17. 17- 70 in West Africa. He grew up in a society which had a number of very strong Muslim institutions. He attended a theological academy for about 25 years. And then, in a war that transpired in about 1806, he was captured and sold into slavery and taken to the United States and in 1807, he was sold in Charleston. This was the last year of the legal importation of slaves into the U.S. He ran away eventually from an abusive master, ended up in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where he took refuge in a church and was apprehended and thrown into jail as a runaway. He covered the Walls of his jail cell with writings which were incomprehensible, which turned out to be Arabic. And so this was kind of a, an astonishing phenomenon. And one of the wealthy planters of the re- region, a man named Jim Owen, decided to purchase this man and make him his, his slave. And so from that time until his death in 1863, Omar ibn Sayyid was enslaved and he was in the Owen family household. His English was very poor. He had come to the to the United States at the age of about 37. And so even though we have documents written by him in Arabic, they were pretty much completely incomprehensible to everyone in his orb. And so, What happened was that the enslavers decided to create a narrative about him which would be advantageous to their interests, which would demonstrate the benevolence of slavery. And Omar had no opportunity to refute this. But what happened was that he was made into a poster child for missionary activities, and he was used for fundraising. Activities and because the missionaries wanted to demonstrate that they had been successful in converting Muslims to Christianity, which was really largely not the case, it was not very successful, and so uh, they needed Omar to be an example that they could pretend showed the success of their missions. What we decided to do was to examine his own writings to see what his point of view is, and the first thing we realized is that nobody had ever bothered to create a critical edition of his writings. Now, as you know, this is the fundamental basic step for the understanding of any text. Nobody had done this. And so people were just showing a photograph of a manuscript and then producing their own translation as if everything is perfectly clear. And this (laughs) is hard to believe. So... What we decided to do was to put his own statements alongside of these reports about him, which were circulated in newspapers of missionary groups and of the uh, American Colonization Society, which was behind the Liberia Project, which we can talk about. And uh, so whenever Omar is in conflict with the stories told about him, we go with Omar. Omar. And so what we concluded is that virtually everything that was written about him during his lifetime was a lie. And this might seem to be somewhat of a extreme view, but in reality, there is nothing in his writings that shows up as having been understood in the writing, in the materials published about him. So that is the kind of viewpoint that we ended up taking. And so we have attempted to provide a meticulous presentation of these documents would have been treated in the past as basically one random thing after another. And also, it was assumed that this was was all ramblings of Omar, except for the obvious quotations from the Quran and the Bible. But in reality, what we discovered was Omar is quoting at least a half a dozen, if not more, important sources, Arabic works on Islamic theology, Sufism, and he was engaging the kind of activity he was trained for. He was giving people sermons as if they could understand them. And he was also making talismans for their protection. So the discovery of the greater depth of his writings was something which impelled us to make this clear, and that's the way we started to do this project.
1: Yeah, one of the great things that readers will find in this book is complete translations of uh, his letters, his autobiography, and that's an incredible service in addition to the excellent intellectual history that one gets of Omar Ibn Said and this uh, 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 moment more broadly speaking. uh, I I want to come to the specific writings, Carl, in a moment, uh, but uh, I think the title of this book is in some ways quite interestingly paradoxical, I Cannot Write My Life, which comes from his own autobiography, because really what both of you have shown is that he wrote a lot, and his writings are in fact very sophisticated and very interesting and draw on different kinds of traditions. So before we come to specific writings, I was really really, uh, struck in uh, one of your chapters, I think it was chapter two, in which you talk about ways in which Umar ibn Saeed brought together this uh, West African oral traditions, uh, and then Islamicate... uh, sort of knowledge traditions uh, and you know uh, sources as you just said from sufism islamic theology maliki law etc so i know we can't go into all of the texts that that he drew from but could you sort of sketch a brief picture for our listeners about the kind of intellectual reservoir this discursive reservoir that he drew from in his in his writings
0: well let's also remember that uh, the kind of instruction he would have received was through oral memorization And whenever he quotes one line from a long poem, we can assume that he has the entire poem in his memory. And he is in fact referring to that. In addition, we assume that when he is putting a series of quotations together, there is a structure, there is a purpose, there is a meaning. And this turns out to work extremely well. Now, with the so-called autobiography, and we always refer to it in quotation marks, it is a very strange document. It begins with four pages from the Quran. It's uh, Surah 67, the chapter called Al Mulk, the Kingdom, which is widely employed for purposes of salvation. It is considered to be an extremely powerful chapter of the Quran, and so it has a reason for being there. On the fifth page, in a much larger handwriting, He writes, Shay Hunter, you asked me to write my life. I cannot write my life. And then he has some other material that follows, which is a quotation from an important theological work, which we can return to. And then there are eight blank pages. After that, there is a new beginning. Shay Hunter, you asked me to write my life. I cannot write my life. What we assume from this extraordinary beginning is that he is, on the one hand, saying that he is not in a position to write his life because, first of all, no one can understand it. He has no audience. He knows this because this so-called autobiography of 1831 is not the first time he has tried to do this. In 1825, there is a report that he had written a story of his life which was entrusted to the learned societies of Philadelphia, but it was lost. We don't know what happened to that. So he is denying that he can write an autobiography. And stepping back for just a second, there are roughly just under 100 so-called slave narratives written before the Civil War. They were published in the American printing world. And every one of those is written by someone who had been enslaved but had been freed and who is writing from a position of freedom and is extremely powerful rhetorically because it's about a narrative of liberation. Omar did not have that opportunity. He was writing from a position of enslavement. So what is the author's voice? He does not choose to write. He is told to write. And the blank pages seem to be mute protest against being called upon to write this text. Secondly, if you look at the text closely, you can see that it consists basically of five different sections, each of which is rewritten, as if to say, I could say this, I could say that, neither one of them is me. So the other thing to say about the autobiography is that there are three indications of an audience. Number one, there is this Sheikh Hunter, we don't know who that is, probably uh, a minister who had, been acquainted with the Owen family, his enslavers. But immediately after that, he says, "'Oh, my brothers, do not blame me. I have forgotten much.'" Who is he talking to there? We have a pretty strong feeling that this must be his companions in the Theological Academy in Futatoro Toro and Bunda in what is today Senegal. And he says, "'I have forgotten much of my Arabic and of my own language, And so people have read this and they have said, well, you see, Omar is confessing that he doesn't know Arabic anymore. But then he says a quotation. He says, praise be to to God with much praise, God who distributes his bounty or his grace that overflows from the good. This is a quotation from an important text of Islamic law and theology, the Mukhtasar of Khalil, and what is interesting about this uh, apology that he makes when he says, I cannot, I, I don't know my Arabic very well, it's immediately followed by this quotation, bam, his colleagues would have understood exactly what he was talking about. So the performance of humility in this apology for his Arabic is a typical example of Sufi ethics, And it is not a factual bit of information to be put into an automatic interpretation machine. So we do not think this is an autobiography. We do not think it is self-revelatory. And and the last thing is, he has a third audience. He says, oh, people of North Carolina, oh, people of South Carolina, oh, people of America. And this sounds like the introduction to a very important message. what does he say? He says, my master Jim Owen is a very good master. He treats me well. I ask you to consider irony. Irony means saying less than you know. And given that Omar, when he's quoting from the Quran in his numerous other writings, frequently uses verses from the Quran which address the arrogance of wealth and the corruption of power, we do not see here an a childish praise of his enslavers. We see something that is more ironic. So this is a very strange document, and it is not an autobiography in any conventional sense.
1: This is a good opportunity to talk about um, John and Jim Owen, um, and uh, you know who they were. And of course, a section of the book also talks about slavery in North Carolina and. Uh, Very interesting ways in which these characters are, in fact, intimately tied to UNC was quite interesting to read as well. Uh, So can you talk uh, talk a little about who these people were and, again, how their relationship to Omar has been sort of romanticized and what kind of a a sort of interruption does this book bring to this kind of romanticized picture of their relationship?
0: Yeah. Well, the Owen family had come to North Carolina in the 1700s and they obtained a big land grant from the crown. Thomas Owen was the father of the two brothers, Jim and John, and so they were a prominent family in the area of Fayetteville. They had plantations in the neighborhood, and so Jim Owen, as I mentioned, has, was the one who purchased Omar in eighteen oh seven, or sorry, probably a couple of years later. Around we estimate eighteen ten. Now, uh, his brother John would become the governor of North Carolina in 1828. He was, I regret to say, a student at UNC. He was also a member of the Dialectic Society, which is the oldest student organization in the University of North Carolina, which was established in 1793. And there is a portrait of John Owen in the collection of the Dialectic Society. Now, he had two sons who also attended University of North Carolina, and his brother Jim did not go, but his he had at least one son who went to UNC. And so we have reason to think that it, there would, be, would have been a number of opportunities for Omar to be on the campus of UNC, which was, after all, built by slaves. So this is the connection which goes way back, and John Owen continued to be, after his His stint as governor, he was on the board of trustees for 20 years. And this was, of course, during the slavery days. And there's an interesting feature of law in North Carolina that is called the law of escheat. This is an old English term, and it denotes people who die without a will. And so by the law of escheat, the the government may take possession of such estates as are without a will. And so when the University of North Carolina was founded by the state legislature, they didn't really put up any money, but they've created a law which said that these estates without wills will be given to this University of North Carolina, and this included the slaves, of course. So uh, this is one of the things that we learn about the Owen family. Now... The oldest document that we have from Omar was written in 1819. And this is a letter which has been, it's the only one which has been well studied by, uh, well, the very good scholar John Hunwick, who was at Northwestern University for many years, a great expert on Africa. Anyway, uh, it was addressed to the Owen brothers, and it is a fascinating document because it's got a whole raft of quotations, including poetry. And one of the lines of poetry is especially astonishing. It turns out to be two verses from the great Sufi poet Abu Madian, who was born in Seville and whose tomb in Algeria is one of the great places of pilgrimage among Muslims in North Africa. And so what Abu Madian says, and he was known for his stern sermons, the two verses that are quoted to say, You who's turning gray, by God, what are you waiting for? Do you not recognize the fate of those before you, my brother? Are you an idiot or are you insane? Your beard is white, but your heart is black. This is addressed to the Owen brothers. It is a sermon. It is telling them to repent and get right with God. And they had no idea what he was saying.
1: Uh, and this, with this letter of John Owen, uh, particularly interesting also is the reception that it got and how it reaches us and other people who have commented on it. I was especially uh, um, uh, struck by uh, George Post, an American missionary who was associated with the Syrian Protestant colleges. So could we, I think that's a very important part of this book as well, of how Omar and his sort of layers of intellectual depth uh, just are not... Uh, Uh, understood by people who come across his writing. So could you tell us a bit about the reception of this letter and especially of Post? Yeah.
0: Well, the letter has a very
1: amazing kind of history.
0: Now, the Owens were very prominent people. And so one of the one of their friends was John Lewis Taylor, who was the first Supreme Court judge of the North Carolina Supreme Court. And he became interested in this because like many eminent Americans at the time, he was drawn into the religious revival of the uh, of the early 19th century and this also spilled over into the not only to the Bible societies that supported missions but the American Colonization Society which supported the Liberia project sending free blacks back to Africa and also expecting them to become missionaries for both protestant christianity and the american way of life it's a kind of grandiose Enterprise. So John Lewis Taylor sent a letter to F- Francis Scott Key, who everyone knows is the composer of the National Anthem. He was the secretary of the Colonization Society for many years and very involved with that. So John Lewis Taylor is writing to Francis Scott Key, and he says, John Owen has received this letter from this African slave, and he can't understand it or the, the two brothers cannot understand a word of it. Can you help us to get this translated? And they tried, and they found there was one scholar of biblical studies named Moses Stewart at Yale University, Yale College at the time. And he had he an had interest in Arabic, but, you know, he basically bought an Arabic grammar from Paris and tried to work through the first paradigms, but he would not have made it into our second-year Arabic classes. So he couldn't do it. And so uh, this meant that this was not understood at the time. Now, Post came along in 1863, and he was headed to what would become the American University in Beirut, which was uh, originally a missionary project. And so he decided to look at this document, and he tried to figure it out what, what was going on. And he skips right over the passage where Omar says, I want to be seen again in our land called Africa. Now the enslavers maintained with a straight face that Omar refused to go back to Africa. But here in his own words, he's plainly saying, I want to go back to Africa. And so Pose skips over that. And also he goes on to say that he's re- seen other documents he claims by Omar in which he's talking about his deep commitment to Christian missions and this looks to me like a complete forgery and falsification.
1: One of the central uh, 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 texts that, of course, really feature, uh, I should say, two of the major texts that really featured in his writings are, of course, the Quran and the Bible. And he spent a lot of time not only translating, but also commenting on the significance of his uh, you know, writings on the Quran. And the last uh, chapter of the book, I believe, or towards the end, there is an entire discussion on how the Bible features in his writings. Could you speak a bit, uh, Carl, about the overall ways in which the Quran and the Bible feature in his writings and what kind of a comparison we can draw between how he employs the two and uh, what do we learn from his writings on the Quran and the Bible or his quotations from the Quran and the Bible?
0: Right. Well, first of all, if we look at the sort of scope of his quotations, he quotes from about 26, 26 different chapters or passages from the Quran. He quotes six from the Bible. The ones from the Quran are much longer. From the the Bible, he quotes three verses from the book of Psalms, three Psalms. They're very short texts. And then three passages from the New Testament. One is a quotation from the Gospel of John, which we could talk about, which had not been recognized in previous scholarship. Another one is from the Book of Romans, and a third is the Lord's Prayer, which is quoted a number of times. Now, it is very extraordinary, and it should not be overlooked at all to see that Omar, when he's quoting from these biblical texts, more often than not, introduces them with Islamic blessings, the, the Quranic passage of the, in the name of God, the merciful and the compassionate, and blessings on the Prophet Muhammad. So the enslavers who wrote about him said that he had given up what they call the bloodstained pages of the Quran to sit at the feet of the Prince of Peace. They imagined conversion as a complete repudiation of his Muslim training. This is simply insupportable. And when he's quoting from these Christian texts, well, actually, Half of them are from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, so they're not actually Christian. And the Lord's Prayer does not, interestingly enough, although this is a prayer dictated by Jesus according to tradition, there is no specifically Christian content in the Lord's Prayer. It is only in the passage from the Gospel of John and the book of Paul's letter to the Romans that there is a theological reference to the status of Jesus. And I think what's interesting is, let's, let's let's look at the one from the book of John. This quotes a verse from John 1, 17, which says, the law was brought by Moses and grace and truth were brought by Jesus, the Messiah. Now, this term grace is very interesting because it plays a very important role in Christian theology. And in fact, if you look at this verse in this context, it's part of the, the the first half of the verse that that the law was brought by Moses is part of the polemic against Judaism. In other words, the rejection of the notion that the law is sufficient for salvation. This is deeply written throughout the Pauline letters of the New Testament, and so uh, that's kind of interesting. Now, that term in in Greek is charis. and in Arabic it is translated as ni'mah or ni'am in the plural, which can mean bounty or grace or a a wonderful gift. And so we think that Omar was looking at this verse with a very Islamic perspective, because when you look at the Arabic word for law that's in that verse, it's shar, which is part of the word sharia. Now, in the Christian perspective, this is a negative term because the law is not sufficient. But for a Muslim to say Moses brought the, the Sharia, that's pretty high praise. And whereas Christian readers would see this as a contrast between Moses and Jesus, I don't think most Muslim readers could have imagined that would be a contrast. And so this this word, ne'am, ne'am, meaning grace, is what was quoted at the beginning of the so-called autobiography, where he says, God distributes his bounty that overflows with the good. So what we're talking about here is, for Christians, grace is only obtainable through the intermediary of Jesus. For Omar, grace is unrestricted. And he's quoting an Islamic text to prove this.
1: I think this is a good opportunity to um, have you talk about another key theme of the book, or a key argument, this elephant in the room about conversion, this whole idea of, you know, him having become a convert and that having, you know, become the uh, uh, central or dominant way in which he's remembered today. Uh, uh, so how do, how does this, what you've just described, is fascinating details on his writings on the Bible and how he quotes different uh, traditions uh, from uh, Islamic thought. Uh, in what ways, where do we then uh, conclude in terms of this whole question of his conversion? What kind of an answer to that uh, dominant perception do you present uh, in the book?
0: Well, this is a subject which many people have been drawn into. And I think that in general, what happens is that people speculate about his mental state and imagine what they think he should have thought. And that is fine for them, but it's not a very convincing scholarly method. So instead of imagining what he thought, we decided to basically go with what he said. And so what are the writings that he has? How does he use these texts? As I mentioned, he employs Islamic blessings very frequently, and a number of the documents are actually identified with English notations written in pencil, falsely. Whereas, for instance, we have one document in UNC which is labeled on the back as a, the Lord's Prayer in Arabic, but it's actually a chapter from the Quran. When he's right, when he's quoting the Quran, as I said before, he's quoting frequently the verses which are critical of the arrogance of the wealthy. And there's even when he's quoting from the Bible, he, there's one passage from Psalm 123, which is about slavery, which depicts the worshiper as a slave gazing adoringly at their slave owner. And, but at the same time, it also asks God for help against those who look up on me with scorn and disdain. So there's all these different tensions in there. I mean, the thing is, if we look at the church records of the Fayetteville Presbyterian Church and the Wilmington Presbyterian Church, they both record Omar as a member. And I expect what it must have happened was that John Owen or Jim Owen said to him one day, it's time for you to go to church. And when he was told that, he he did what he was told. Now, in the records of the church, they say, Omar, whom they refer to by other names like Moro, they say, well, he is an Arab prince and he became a member of our congregation in 1820. Well, that's interesting. He's an Arab and he's a prince. This is part of the Omar legend of lies that was created because he was educated. And so everyone was impressed with that. And they said, well, he cannot possibly be an African because he knows how to read. This is the racism that was so deeply etched into the society. And so in the Wilmington church, on the other hand, it, they called him an Indian prince, which was even more fantastic. And a prince, they they loved the notion that a prince could be reduced to slavery and would be happy to be a slave because he now knows that he's got the true religion and he's been saved from the evils of Islam. So we feel that, for instance, there's a lot of important things to to say about this, but there is no evidence that he rejected his training. In fact, he's still deeply attached and practicing this in documents written well into his eighties. So, uh, The other thing to say is that if we look at the relationships between the Muslim and Christian religious traditions, it is not a symmetrical relationship, because Christianity comes earlier. And if we look at Protestant theologians, they have an intense allergy to anything that would suggest that there is a revelation that happens after the Bible. And so, an evangelical theologian would be, it's almost impossible to imagine them saying anything good about the Quran. For them, it's basically false to start with. And going back to the missionaries for a second, I should point out that the Arabic learning that they understood, that they undertook for their work, was not designed to make them knowledgeable about the writings of Islamic literature or theology or anything of the kind. It was only, allowed, only intended for them to be able to translate Christian doctrines into Arabic because that was the only thing that was true. So they're not interested in understanding the text or anything that Omar is quoting. Now, on the other hand, for a Muslim who reads the Quran closely, there is a lot to say about the Torah and the gospel that is very positive, and the Psalms as well these are all recognized as being legitimate revelations. And so there is no theological barrier for a Muslim to read the Quran. And so the chapter where we talk about Muslim, the the relationship of Omar to Christianity, we call it a Muslim in church. And I think that summarizes the way that this works. And there is also ample evidence to say that in Islamic law, there was discussion of compulsion to convert to another religion. And so if there is compulsion involved, it is forgiven. It is not a problem. So I imagine that for Omar to go to church, he probably just enjoyed it. There's singing, there's excitement, there's lots of stuff going on. It was even said that he went to some revival meetings. But since we we know that basically uh, the defenders of slavery were using Omar to describe the so-called benefits of this institution this is just an untenable connection and we do not accept we do not do not accept the notion that he was in fact following the script of
1: the enslavers god before i ask a final uh, question one thing i really was well, wondered as i read this book and i'm sure our listeners would also be very curious about this is well first of all if you could just very briefly talk a little uh, about the other documents that you translate that we did not get a chance to get into with uh, much depth here, other than the ostensible autobiography and the letter to John Owen, some some description of the other wealth of documents that uh, are being seen in the English translation for the first time. And also, could you speak a bit about um, how these documents uh, are available right now? And I was, I'm was i curious about the process of your own research and the translations Are these mostly in handwritten form, in particular libraries? How did you, uh, uh, your own research process, if you could just talk a little bit about the the paper trail of these texts, I think that would be quite quite interesting to hear about.
0: Well, when we we started the project, we had a list of 14 documents by Omar. We now have 18. It, It turns out that a few others have been identified, and one of them came on the market. A book dealer approached UNC and Duke a couple of years ago, with a new, newly discovered document, and it is now in the UNC collection. So there are 18 documents. Uh, now, the letter of 1819 and the so-called autobiography are the longest. Most of the other ones are one to two pages. But they contain a lot of interesting material. So, for instance, I mentioned the quotation from the poem by Abu Madyan. There's also a theolo- theological poem by a disciple of one of the major major theologians of the 15th century in North Africa. And this one is about, it's a kind of summary of the creeds of the Maliki school. And it's a very interesting text, which is called The Pearl Necklace of the Path. And... In this text, it begins with a kind of discussion of the creation, and Omar quotes one line from it, which says, I'll, I'll give you the Arabic, it's, it's nice, it goes, The beginning, the only, without, sorry, the first, the only without beginning, the last, the eternal without end. This is a description of God. This is a description of God as the creator. The argument from what is called uh, the, uh, the notion that creation is not sustainable by itself. It has to have a source which is eternal. And so he quotes this a couple of times. He also quotes a Sufi poem, which is about the 99 names of God, which are considered to have extraordinary properties for all kinds of beneficial purposes. And so he quotes a passage that addresses two of the names of God, the forgiving and the wrathful. And these were used widely in Sufi practice. And is a text written in Egypt in the 14th century Very popular, and it's been there's a commentary on it by the well known scholar Ahmed Zarou. So these are the things that he was writing. Now, what we did was he's also writing this in a a difficult script. It's the Maghrebi form of writing of North Africa, which has it does a couple of letters differently, it has peculiar conventions, it's tricky, but we have established a critical edition, which means a reading of the text, both as a diplomatic edition, which means copy everything, what exactly is in there. If there's misspellings, you show those, etc. And then we have an, another edition, which is called the, the standard edition. And that's the basis of our translations. And we put both the standard edition and the translations online at the UNC libraries. And I can share that link with you if you like
1: be Terrific. So as, as a final question card, towards the end of the book, you and I uh, make a very important argument that we have to consider these African-Arabic writings such as uh, the writings of Omar ibn Said, as part of world literature that, you know, this whole idea of world literature has to include and ha- must have an expansive notion that does include uh, these uh, African-Arabic writings. Uh, could you speak a bit about the, the, that argument and its importance for you.
0: Yes, well, we, had, we drew upon a very wonderful quotation from the German literary figure Goethe, who introduced the notion of world literature in about 1830. And he was serious about this. Now, what world literature means, it does not mean that you have to know everything. But we feel that what this means is you should know more than one thing. And so that gives you a chance to think about a different language, a different sensibility, a different literary tradition. Now, people in America thought that there is no such thing as literature in Africa. They're all illiterate. This is what most people still think today. And that's simply not true. There is an immense Arabic literature that was written in Africa for over a period of more than 500 years. But to see this as being written down in in America by enslaved people is really important and so we we say that this means that Arabic is an American language because it's been written and used in America and so this also means that Islam is an American religion. So I think that the evidence of Omar bin Sayyid is something that needs to be integrated into our notion of American history and culture and that's our the purpose of our book.
1: Islam, Arabic, and Slavery in Omar ibn Saeed's America by Mbailo and Carl Ernst, published by UNC Press uh, this month. Uh, Thank you, Carl, for this uh, tremendous book that I'm sure will speak to multiple fields and will also, I think, be fantastic to use in the classroom and for talking about this book uh, in such rich ways uh, uh, with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Charlie. It's been a great pleasure. So this was my conversation with Professor Karl Ernst about his and M. Bilo's new book, I Cannot Write My Life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network, NBN, the largest academic podcast in the world. I think I'm correct in saying that. Please join me next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to NBIS, New Books in Islamic Studies. Bye now.